welcome to the Nutrition Science Podcast, where we help you cut through the noise and make informed, science-based decisions about nutrition and your health. How's it going, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of the Nutrition Science Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Adrian Chavez. And in this episode, I am going to be publishing another interview that I did on another podcast. This is the same podcast uh, uh, that I published the insulin resistance interview from. It's the Where Optimal Meets Practical podcast with Jordan Lips. Jordan does a really good job of interviewing, keeping the interview on point, covering all of the important topics. And I got a lot of positive feedback from that insulin resistance episode. And I've also gotten a lot of positive feedback directly from people who have listened to the gut health podcast that we did on his show. These are the two primary topics that I would say that I have expertise in. I don't often get interviewed on these topics. I appreciate Jordan for going in and understanding the topics that I can really discuss in depth because oftentimes I get interviewed a lot on podcasts, but it's often about uh, identifying misinformation and topics along those lines, which are fun and interesting to talk about. And I enjoy talking about these things, but I really like geeking out on digestive health and insulin resistance. Those are two of my favorite topics. And that's why I am reposting those onto this podcast because I could put together my own episode, but Jordan did a good job of really breaking down the topics and interviewing me well on these particular topics. So I am going to go ahead and cut to that where Optimal Meets Practical podcast interview with Jordan. I hope you all enjoy the show and we'll talk next week. What's going on? Welcome back to the show. It's uh, well, I don't even know. It's our second, third, fourth time. Let's uh, let's uh, welcome you here. We'll do a super quick intro. And I know we were both kind of looking at the notes for today. And we're like, shit, man. Like, I don't know if we have enough time for this. So let's keep the intro short. I'll direct people to some other podcasts that they, they want to learn more about you. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Uh, I agree. So um, quick intro, Adrian Chavez. If you haven't heard me on previous podcasts, I have a PhD in nutrition, health promotion. Uh, and as we'll talk about today, you know, I do a lot of debunking of misinformation online because there's so much of it and uh, all of it's just not based in science. So we'll talk about why a lot of that with respect to the gut uh, today. And you'll hear more about that and definitely check out the previous episodes where we talked about seed oils and insulin resistance to other really uh, interesting topics. Yeah, definitely two of my my favorite episodes. I know they've also just like done well metric wise. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad, frankly, because I think that they're just really full chock full of high quality information in a topic that is chock full of misinformation. So I think we do a good job. Ho hopefully we're doing another service here today with this one, but to set the scene, just for you guys listening, the, the kind of topics that we'll dive into. And just as I'm saying these, I know that each one of these could be an individual topic, but we're going to talk about gut health, obviously. And we're going to do a little bit of like, what is it? And obviously that by itself could be its own podcast. We'll talk, talk about how much we really do know about it. Like what are the things we do know? Um, and equally, we'll talk about, well, probably not equally, we'll talk about all the things we don't know about it and some of the pseudoscience, some of what people are selling and saying that really isn't based in evidence, not based in things that we actually know, uh, like what to look for as a consumer, talk about fiber, fermented foods, probiotics, elimination diets, and a little bit about what Dr. Adrian's process might be if he has a client that comes to him with, you know, quote, gut issues. Um, I don't know how much of that we'll get through today. I'll try and keep us moving. Um, if we get sidetracked on one of these top one of these topics, that's awesome too and, and totally cool. I know there's plenty to talk about. So let's I'm gonna throw it to you. Let's set the scene a little bit. You know, someone's like, hey, what what is the gut and uh how does it how does it's how does taking care of it affect our health positively and negatively? 
Yeah, Super so the gut is a really long track. It goes from your mouth to your anus. It's like 27 feet, you know, varies from person to person. And there's different compartments to our GI tract. So when I think of the gut, I, you know, when you say gut, I always think GI tract, gastrointestinal tract, where we're looking at um, the stomach, which is the first like place where, well, food will start to get digested in your mouth, but then it goes down to the stomach, goes through the esophagus to the stomach. There's a whole bunch of acid in the stomach. There's an enzyme called pepsin. The, the stomach has really strong muscular contractions where it kind of moves your food around and and makes it into what's called chyme. It's just this nasty ball of substance. And then it gets uh, dumped into the small intestine where your food then gets mixed with enzymes that come from the pancreas, from bile that's going to be released from the gallbladder. And all of these different organs are playing a role in your digestion. So when we talk about like gut health, we're usually talking about digestive health. We're usually talking about the totality of all of these different organ systems and how they work together. So uh, in the small intestine, you're going to have that chyme. It's all the digested food. And then you're going to have enzymes from the gallbladder. You're going to, or from the pancreas, you're going to have bile from the gallbladder. And all of that is going to work to chemically break down your food so that you can absorb it. And in the small intestine is where you absorb those nutrients that, that you can utilize. And then your food gets pushed to the small intestine, to the colon, where there's a lot of microbes. So in the colon is where microbial digestion occurs more so than in the small intestine. For some people, it happens more in the small intestine for reasons that, uh, and uh, in, in for reasons that actually can cause symptoms and, and aren't necessarily uh, ideal and it's not supposed to be happening in that way. But so after we digest our food, our food gets sent to the large intestine. We have a bunch of microbes in there. It's one of the most microbial rich, you know, uh, places in the world essentially is in our colon. And that those microbes are basically eating up what we don't digest they're breaking down certain particles of, of different foods and utilizing some of that. And in many cases, pro promoting positive health benefits from the, the action that they're um, from the fermentation and other, other breakdown that, that is occurring of our undigested food. So that's the gut, um, how it affects our health uh, in many ways. I mean, it can impact our ability to absorb different nutrients. So if you're not absorbing nutrients properly, that can impact your health in a number of different ways. So that's an important factor. There can be inflammation that's coming from your digestive tract. That's could be the result of different food sensitivities, food allergies, um, microbial fermentation, and you have like dysbiosis, which means like you have a overgrowth of pathogenic types of microbes. And when you eat certain foods, it's, it's aggravating that a little bit, creating an inflammatory response from that. So our, our digestive system is an intricate part of our overall health. And I don't think it's been recognized as such. And I think that's why, you know, we've kind of seen, seen the swing in the other direction where a lot of people were talking about gut health, because I don't think, um, you know, previous to 15, 20 years ago, um, even from a scientific perspective, we didn't realize how important our digestive system is. We didn't realize how important all these microbes that live in our gut are, and we couldn't really measure them very well. We still can't. Uh, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but, um, you know, the, the microbiome and the gut microbiome immune health re, you know, interaction between all of those different things that, that we didn't know about that scientifically until about 15, 20 years ago is when we first started being able to measure that. So, so 
that is a new frontier and something we're learning about currently, but the gut is, you know, this entire, you know, spectrum of, or this entire uh, interaction between all of these different organ systems uh, that the primary goal is to digest food and eliminate waste. So the gut also helps to kind of remove things in our food that we're not supposed to be absorbing and also remove certain things from our body that come from our liver that are dumped into our digestive system through bile, like different hormones and, and extra cholesterol and, and the digestive system helps to eliminate that waste as well. I think one of the big, the big, um, maybe it's because it's conceptually just like easy to break down and, and discuss and say, and is this discussion of like taking care of the gut microbiota in the, in the colon, it's like feeding those bacteria and, and having a microbial diversity. And I think that is, it, you actually mentioned a couple of things, which I'm happy that you did, that it's just, it's more than that, but I feel like that is the, the hot topic right now of like, oh, I got to take care of my bacteria. You know, I got to make sure I'm feeding them bacteria and, and populating them and having diversity and and it's interesting that you also brought up kind of what can happen earlier on in that process of like absorbing things that maybe you shouldn't in the small intestine and and such. And so what are when we're looking at like an average person listening to this podcast, like, OK, like I get it. Like it's one like we're not exact. We don't know a ton about it. We know that there's like there's a, a large connection and interplay between taking care of this system as a whole and other parts of my health, both physical and potentially psychological, mental um, what are some things that are, we know are good. And I put that in air quotes for those of you guys. Now, what are the things that are, we know are good for taking care of our gut or is it even not that simple because we do have to take things down to like an individual case? I mean, the thing that is universally shown to be quote unquote good for our gut is plant foods. Like that, that is, I think that's the easiest thing that I can just say, this is good for our gut. Like in every study, intervention trial, and long-term studies where they're looking at microbial diversity, they're looking at development of diverticulitis, inflammatory bowel disease, irritable bowel syndrome. It's you know, given that you're eating you know a mostly whole food diet, including more plant foods, is seems to be incredibly important, and that is likely due to various factors, but the fiber is an important one because fiber is what what is providing fuel and it's not necessarily just fiber the the whole fiber and the fiber classifications are, are kind of outdated at this point in terms of what these various non-digestible carbohydrates do so we're looking at it's not necessarily just fiber it's it's carbohydrates that we don't digest that when we don't digest them they th then get broken down by microbes in our colon and that's what leads to um helping to populate our our microbial diversity and helping to improve you know improve our microbiome if you will um but that i think is the, the one thing that i can say like without a doubt everything else is you know could be good could be bad you know or not necessarily bad but um you know in every study that that's the one thing that's really consistent if you're eating more plant foods higher diversity of plant foods seems to be beneficial and the thing with fiber that I really want to highlight that a lot of people don't understand is we, we kind of classify it as like insoluble or soluble, but the reality is every food has a different fiber structure and that fiber structure can provide fuel for a different type of microbe. So that's why diversity is important is because uh, you're not getting just like soluble and insoluble fiber. There's such a variety of different types of fiber that can provide fuel for different types of microbes. And so if you're eating, five different types of beans, you know, and then a couple of different types of veggies with the meal, that's going to be much different than eating 
one bean, one veggie, even if it's the same volume. So diversity um, is important for in, in our food for improving diversity in our microbiome. And this diversity uh, factor seems to be the thing that's associated with lower rates of uh, health conditions and, and better, you know, improved metabolic health and other factors as well. I definitely want to come back to the topic of diversity. I think that that's a, maybe that's just my inkling as to like where we're headed in terms of this discussion in fiber, in terms of the research and the recommendations. I think that that's maybe you as a person more in the know have been more in the know about the importance of diversity, but I feel like it's coming more to the mainstream or it's going to in the future. Let's take one small step back and just talk about how it is even the case that these non-digestible carbohydrates end up in the colon and, and what they're actually doing and how they get there. And then also maybe kind of break down some of the terminology that people have heard like prebiotic fiber or probiotic or symbiotic. And what do these words okay. even mean? How is it even that fiber is, is accomplishing this task of feeding the gut? Yeah. Yeah. So when I say undigested, that means all, all the enzymes that we have in our small intestine don't break them down. So because that, because of that, that they move to the colon, um, undigested, we don't absorb the the sugars in those foods, and so and and so rice is an example of this. If we heat rice up and then cool it down, it has more resistant starches. These aren't technically fibers, but they go undigested through the small intestine. When they get to the colon, the microbes in the colon break those carbohydrates down, use them for fuel. And that's what helps those bacteria and microbes to proliferate. So uh, you mentioned prebiotics. So prebiotics are anything that provide fuel for microbes. So what I was just talking about, these, these undigested carbohydrates, these fermentable carbohydrates that we don't break down that our microbes can, all of that is considered a prebiotic. So all of the foods that contain undigestible carbohydrates that, that are accessible for our microbiome, uh, all of those would be classified as having some prebiotic. Oftentimes we'll see prebiotics sold as supplements and they'll include uh, a lot of something like inulin or chicory root. And sometimes those are added to foods to increase the fiber content. Uh, that's not ideal um, because you're, you're taking in a lot of one type of fiber and unless that fiber is beneficial for some other reasons like psyllium husk has many positive benefits that have been proven like something like inulin or chicory root those things often don't seem to to be beneficial for many people and can cause gi symptoms for a lot of people so i recommend staying away from like these prebiotic supplements and focusing more on prebiotic foods high fiber foods uh, beans nuts seeds whole grains you know fruits and vegetables and focusing there. So that's what prebiotics are. Probiotics are any live microbes that we're either consuming through a, through a supplement or through our food. So we could, we could get probiotics from yogurt if it's live active cultures. Same thing with sauerkraut and kimchi and things like that that are fermented. But if it's not refrigerated, it's not going to have any uh, probiotics. And the thing with probiotics is we're just guessing and we're hoping for the best. So like when you take in, let's say kimchi, um, there's likely going to be some benefit. There's, there's one study that has shown that um, eating, just going to the grocery store and picking up uh, probiotic foods showed a benefit in terms of microbial diversity. 
Um, and so it's probably a good idea to include some probiotic foods, but a lot of people expect them to do more than they're actually going to do, especially with the supplements. Um, you're putting in like 10, 15 strains of some certain microbe, you know, at maybe a couple million or tens of million or hundred million, or maybe even up to a billion CFUs, uh, which is colony forming units when you take in those pills or supplements or foods, but, uh, our, our GI tract has trillions of, of microbes and we don't know how many of those microbes survive to the stomach acid and, the, and, and many of them probably don't. So when we're taking in some of these foods, um, sometimes we expect it to have a larger effect than it actually is because the, the GI tract is incredibly complicated in the number of different species and the amount of microbes in our gut is, substantially more than what you're going to get from eating some probiotic foods. So it may have benefits for some people like taking in some of these things, you know, some people will notice like I'm a little bit less bloated or I'm having better, you know, better bowel movements, but rarely do I see those type of benefits for people. And, and a lot of people are trying too hard to focus on these probiotics when the real benefit is from prebiotics. The real, you know, thing that we've seen um, over the long term is just eating more fiber rich foods, because that's going to have additional benefits as well beyond just helping to populate your microbiome. The fiber rich foods are also going to have benefits for cardiovascular health and diabetes and other health outcomes as well. So uh, that's what probiotics are. And then you mentioned postbiotics or symbiotic? Symbiotic. We can do postbiotic as well. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Most people that haven't heard of the postbiotic one, uh, symbiotics are the combination of the two. So let's say you ate kimchi. That's a symbiotic essentially because it provides fiber and it provides, um, microbes. So a symbiotic, when they do, um, supplements, they're usually combining it with inulin, chicory root, fructo oligosaccharides, some other type of prebiotic fiber within the pill. And then that's why they're calling it a symbiotic. I don't, is that relevant though? Is it, is it, is it like, I understand like, you know, if, if a takeaway here was like, Hey, prebiotics are things that feed my current microbiome and probiotics are things that populate my current microbiome with more bacteria, strains of bacteria, whatever, like symbiotic is a word that means something that has both, but is that, is that relevant that I must be that like, I'm eating both of them at the same time and thus I'm getting more benefit or is this a, a denomination here to like call so something? I've seen some clinical studies that have shown benefit but they're not comparing it to they're comparing it to nothing you know so they're looking at the symbiotic compared to nothing because they're just trying to show positive effects of it i i I would say probably not if you're eating fiber in your diet and that's you're just taking a probiotic with your meal and you're actually eating a, a diverse you know diet and you have different types of fiber i'd say that's probably more beneficial than taking it in in, in pill form plus you have to take multiple pills, large pills, and you're getting ripped off when you buy that stuff anyway, because they're isolating a fiber source and charging you a high premium for it. So I definitely don't recommend that. I don't recommend the average person take probiotics. I mean, if you really want to just eat some fermented foods and you're going to get both, like I mentioned, fermented foods are going to be a symbiotic anyway. Um, so I, that, that's another one that it's just, it sounds cool when you hear symbiotic, it's like, oh, wow, it's, it's combining the best of everything that we need. But the reality is you're eating prebiotics if you're eating, if you're not like on a carnivore diet. Um, so pretty much everyone is eating prebiotics in some way. Um, and just taking the uh, probiotic with that uh, is going to be same thing. 
the other thing you mentioned, um, postbiotics. So postbiotics, this is a new um, field. This is, I think there's going to be a clinical application to like for drug development with this field. Postbiotics are basically looking at all the different compounds that the microbes in our gut create and then trying to synthesize those. So for example, one of the things that um, some of the bifidobacteria in our colon create are wh what's called butyrate. And so butyrate, um, when it's a short chain fatty acid, when there's butyrate's a primary fuel source for, for the colon cells, and it also um, increases the, the release of a, a, an immune cell called interleukin-10, which basically turns down inflammation. So higher butyrate levels, if we can deliver it in the right way to those colonic cells, could potentially help with like inflammatory bowel disease, there's a little bit of um, research going on with that, but that's a postbiotic. That's basically taking um, something that was being produced by our gut microbiome and trying to deliver that in in you know certain concentrations. And I think we'll be doing more of that from like a clinical standpoint um, and more like drugs and and potential. I don't think any supplements. I think there's going to be like some drug development from postbiotic um different postbiotic compounds but trying to <laughs> learn and understand postbiotics is is just really really complicated we're not there yet yeah and we can't control it like you, you, we have no idea what's going to be produced by what we don't get digested because then you know even it doesn't even come down to what we eat it's like okay what we eat but then do you digest it or do you not digest it does it get to the you know does it get um, broken down by microbes in the small intestine first, or, you know, does it get to the colon? There's so many variables um, that go into whether or not, you know, that end result is achieved in terms of having that positive effect on, on the compounds that are being created. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk about net carbs, although I would hate for the motivation for people. I guess eating more fiber might be an end that's justifiable by any means. But um, this idea of net carbs, meaning, you know, we just had this whole conversation about, okay, I eat certain prebiotic fiber. And the whole point is that I'm not digesting this, the entirety of this thing that I'm eating, um, assumedly not extracting all the, the calories from this food. You know, where do, where, where do we stand right now on our understanding of net carbs and the application, you know, is there even a practical application of net carbs or is it just something that most people should forget the existence of and kind of just, find other uh, motivation to pursue more diversity in terms of fiber and plant intake, or is it something that's actually relevant and worth discussing? Yeah. So yeah, we're, we're not absorbing those carbs like we would traditionally with the normal carbohydrates. So we don't know how much energy we're getting from that at all. And that's the, that's the challenge. You can't just completely subtract that energy intake because some of that is getting turned into short chain fatty acids, which provide a fuel source, which can get absorbed in, into the system and, and contribute to energy balance. So, um, and, and that varies dramatically based uh, from person to person. So really just subtracting those calories, um, doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't recommend it because you're going to be underestimating. So just keep them in, uh, and you'll, you're, you're, creating at least a couple of, uh, you know, couple calories per gram from what I, from what I've read. Um, so it's not, you know, people are estimating that as zero when it's actually probably two or three potentially. And so, yeah, we definitely have to, I don't, I don't, I didn't know that that term had blown up in that way. Like people were using net carbs to like eat more calories or whatever, but yeah, that's definitely not the way to do it. Um, 
eat fiber yes definitely um but but using it because it doesn't provide calories is is misinterpreted we we understand now so we used to just we used to just know from a scientific perspective we knew that it didn't get absorbed into the small intestine so we just thought okay that's why they counted it as zero calories because that's just that was the end of the understanding at that point but now we understand that these fibers get fermented and then some of them turn into energy still so now that adds a layer of nuance to to what we previously thought was okay if it's a fiber carb it's zero because i used to think that as well you know a decade ago and then you know i read some studies about like how some of these fibers get turned into uh fatty acids and uh by the microbes in the gut and it's just unpredictable so yeah from that standpoint definitely don't subtract calories from net carbs I think in a world where we are, we categorically across the board underestimate our intake. This might just be one thing just that you should just fucking leave alone. And if you're happen to be overestimating by, you know, a smidge that like, maybe this is like just one part of that scale that we can live with because nine times out of 10, we're underestimating across the board. So this might be just one thing that we just leave alone. Uh, and it definitely, like you said, definitely is going to depend on the individual. It's going to depend on the food. Uh, and so it might be just such a high level of variability that maybe we're not uh, maybe it's probably just best to leave it alone. Yeah, definitely leave it alone. And like you said, typically when I'm recommending tracking, I'm typically recommending things that are going to get people to overestimate because I know that you're probably underestimating 20%. So if, if we don't make up for that somehow, and, and you know, some don't, there's, there's the, the, the rare client who just truly tracks everything, but that is not the norm. Most and people... I, and, and, Go even ahead. myself, like yeah. even myself, I, I know that I underestimate when I do certain or like if I am tracking and I haven't done that in quite a while, but, um, so I would just like purposefully overestimate certain things. Cause I know that I'm underestimating certain things and it evens out that way. I'm less, I'm less talking necessarily to the end consumer. I don't, I don't necessarily think that people are doing this calculation themselves. It's more so an issue of like FDA approving this on packaging. And so it's like, Hey, I scanned oh, yeah. a barcode for like my mission wraps, which we'll talk about in a bit. These like you had mentioned certain uh, either supplements or foods that have been almost like injected with, I don't want to say fake fiber, but a high concentration of one fiber that might be a, yeah. just a mis misallocation of this, the benefit here. Um, but yeah, it's like all of a sudden this, they're like, great, this, this wrap is six calories now you know total after subtracting all these the of grams of fiber i don't absorb so um we'll get to that in a bit i want to make sure that we're staying on track we're going to get all of it let's do a quick little note on resistant starch you had mentioned the idea of like hey if i cook rice and then i let it cool it will then have a higher fiber content you know that you might rephrase that more appropriately through an increase in what's called resistant starch which is something that is not digested by the small intestine let's say that does make it you know further along the gi tract how important is that? How much do people need to be thinking about that? Do people need to just go ahead and stop eating their rice right away? Do we need to all start doing this? Is it something with a low, you know, uh, low risk, low reward, high risk, high reward? How are we kind of framing that? So, um, I mean, I recommend just cooking starches ahead of time and, you know, having them No, So you can, it's not a big deal if you eat it the first day, but it's going to increase the blood sugar response or it's going to reduce the blood sugar response. It's going, going to turn into basically a higher fiber food. So everyone thinks, oh yeah, rice is a low fiber food. If you cool it, then it becomes a higher fiber food because some of these starches, they, the chemical 
makeup of that starch changes where it's no longer uh, accessible to our digestive enzymes and it can't be broken down in the small intestine. So it leads to um, this bacterial fermentation that seems to be beneficial, especially with these resistant starches. Um, they seem to all the studies that have been done, clin clinical randomized trials, epidemiological studies um, on resistant starches and consuming them show positive benefits. So um, rice, oatmeal, potatoes will do this as well. Um, so kind of cooking and even like pasta, cooking foods ahead of time, um, those foods ahead of time and letting them cool is definitely worthwhile. I wouldn't go like completely out of your way. And if you're like cooking dinner and you're like, no, I'm not going to eat it yet. I'm going to go put it in the freezer for an hour. Like definitely don't do that, but it's convenient to cook stuff ahead of time anyway, especially with these starches where you can just put like a bunch of rice in the rice cooker. And then that is number one convenient for you. And then also, uh, you know, provides that additional health benefit, uh, when you do that. So I highly recommend doing that with those types of foods, um, you can also get resistant starches from beans and lentils. So I recommend eating those all the time anyway. So including more of those and replacing one of the things that I think a lot of people could benefit from is like replacing some of the animal protein that you're, they're eating with more beans, lentils, because those foods are going to provide some protein with fiber, with some B vitamins and micronutrients as well. Um, many different beans have good, good sources of iron, calcium. So, um, that's a good strategy and that's a way to increase resistant starches as well. It's just kind of include some more beans and lentils. Um, but definitely, as you mentioned, I wouldn't go completely out of your way, but, uh, if you, if, if you can prep some carbohydrates ahead of time and have, have those ready for the week, it's convenient for you. And it also provides some additional health benefit there. Yeah. I think it's just another notch on the belt of like, Hey, maybe doing a little bit of prep has an extra benefit here. Agreed. Let's uh let's you briefly touched upon it this idea of maybe insoluble soluble being kind of an outdated denomination here an outdated difference an outdated way of thinking about fiber and that maybe we should be viewing these things as like um you know fiber like broccoli fiber or psyllium husk fiber or xyz fiber and more on an individual food basis just because it's it's slightly more complex than like oh it has this much insoluble and this much soluble can we talk about this idea of uh, maybe describing it in a different way and pursuing some form of diversity. And then we'll talk a little bit about general recommendations in terms of diversity. And then, I'll, and then I would like to talk about like, is there like, you know, going down the chain of like, okay, uh, maybe talking about like total gram per day recommendations or even where to begin with some of those things. So let's start yeah. with diversity. I know it's a lot. Yeah. Okay. So the first thing um, with the classification, so insoluble versus soluble fiber, uh, this was just the way that it was first classified based on its ability to dissolve in water. Um, so this was years and years and years ago. I think this classification was was created 40, 50, 60 years ago. Now we understand that there's different properties of fiber. And as you mentioned, each each food has different fiber types so that, you know, we, we think that the classification should go all the way down to the specific food and what the effects are of that food. But there's another um, set of classifications that has kind of been proposed recently uh, based on like the the actions of the of the specific fiber so there's they also like to add to the insoluble soluble um, they've also classified more recently as viscous and non-viscous fibers so viscous fibers are the types of fibers that can form a gel-like substance in your in your intestines and this gel-like substance is what absorbs some bile this is what 
helps to slow blood sugar uptake and helps to regulate blood sugar control. So these viscous fibers, when we look at, you know, fibers that are more viscous versus non-viscous, uh, fibers that are more viscous seem to be more beneficial overall. So this is another you know, form of classification that kind of helps us identify, okay, is, is this fiber more viscous? Is it going to have these beneficial effects on blood sugar, on cholesterol? Um, and, and then the additional classification is fermentable and non-fermentable. And this is also a spectrum. So, so is with the viscous and non-viscous, like it's not black and white, you know, every type of fiber source has a certain, um, potential to, to, um, create that gel-like substance. And, and then also, well, and then there's also another classification within that, but we won't go into the, into that. And then there's also the fermentable, non-fermentable, which is, um, based on that fiber's ability to be fermented by, by gut microbiota. So that, uh, classification helps to helps us to better understand like the properties and function of different types of fiber right now. And that's, I think what's being used uh, more commonly in the scientific community and will be used more commonly like in public communication, probably in the next 10 to 15 years, it's probably going to take some time because uh, papers have just been published more so on kind of defining uh, those specific criteria, but that's a good one because um, it helps understand, okay, this, this type of fiber is going to pr produce this like soluble type of effect that seems to be beneficial for all these things. And then, you know, whether or not something's going to be fermented or not can help guide people in choosing the right fiber sources. The challenge with all of this is, uh, every, every food is going to have some degree of fermentability, some degree of being able to produce like that viscosity. And so this is why, where we really need to get to the point. We haven't really got there yet because we haven't, we haven't been able to classify everything in this way, but where we can say, okay, broccoli fiber has this level of viscosity, this level of fermentability. Um, and I think that'll be the next wave of, of classification, but that's going to be uh, like another 10 years <laughs> again, because science of really kind of, classifying all of these things now that we understand it well enough to create these more detailed classifications now it's a matter of testing all of these foods and coming up with the criteria for you know classifying something as viscous or non-viscous or fermentable non-fermentable looking at broccoli stems versus broccoli uh you know the tips the of broccoli stores, yeah. like there's there's so much detail that needs to be filled in uh to get to that next level of classification it's really important though for a lot of people, especially people dealing with GI issues is because, you know, the fermentable fibers can, can be problematic for a lot of people. Um, insoluble fibers can be problematic for some people. So really understanding those classifications and understanding how to choose foods that represent the, the fiber types that are going to be easiest for you to digest. Because a lot of people with GI issues tend to just get rid of fiber because they feel better when they're not eating it, but it's typically, certain types of fiber like some individuals it's insoluble fiber some individuals it's it's the um the fermentable fibers and if you can kind of choose fiber types that don't fit those criteria that that are problematic for you then you don't have to just avoid all fiber and all plants uh you can still feel good without doing that I feel like um we're maybe at a point where very generally we're looking at it as shit man we're still figuring this out there's a lot of differences in and it, it is down to the actual food itself not necessarily like 
this food is this thing. This food is its own matrix of a couple different qualifications. And I, and again, if you correct me if I'm wrong, but it probably ends with a, a general feeling of like for, a, for the average person who's not currently experiencing GI issues. And we could talk about that in a sec, but like that person's takeaway should be like, well, maybe it's probably best to focus on getting a wide variety of foods, of plant foods, of different kinds of individual food fibers in my diet. And that's probably where I should place more of the, the emphasis instead of trying to be so specific about it. It's like, at this stage, we might not be at a point where prescriptive on a general, on a population level, we can say anything other than diversity is probably a good idea. Yep. Exactly that. I mean, a diversity of plant fibers and, um, you know, like you mentioned, if you have digestive issues, that's when it would be worthwhile to get a little bit more granular. But if you don't just eating plenty of plant foods, and I know there's, there's a trend away from plant foods, but there's really, there's, there's no evidence to support why someone who doesn't have a digestive response to these plant foods, which I want to also say that some people do. There are some people that when they eat these various fibers, they, it, it doesn't do well for their GI tract and they feel a lot better when they take, when they take a lot of these fiber rich foods out. Um, but for the average person consuming fiber, consuming more plant foods, the, the, the evidence that stacks up for those health behaviors is, is astronomical. I mean, there's, there's paper after paper after paper on broccoli and positive health outcomes on tomatoes, on pretty much every fruit and vegetable. Um, and, and so avoiding those for, for reasons that aren't incredibly clear to you is not a good idea. And, and I, and I, while I can, be sympathetic to the person who's like, Hey, I took, I, I went carnivore for a very extreme example where I cut out all plant foods and I felt better. I can, I can sympathize with that experience, but probably a bit of a short-sighted move and, and probably not a net, like, uh, compared to the alternatives, probably not a net choice, which we'll get to in a second. I was thinking while you're talking that I, the way that I, maybe it's not exactly analogous, but I think a little bit, it feels a little analogous to different sources of protein with different amino acid profiles where we are learning more that that's a, maybe more relevant than we thought, but at the same time, still not overriding the idea that probably getting a decent variety of protein sources with a variety of the essential amino acids is probably a good idea. And we do, while it is a fun discussion, I was listening to a podcast with Peter Atia and this other guy, and who's like, we had this like three hour podcast about the, the uh, differences of amino acids and how he would really focus on, you know, leucine, methionine, and, and I, I forgot what the other one was. Um, and then, you know, it was just like very intellectual, super mechanistic all the way down. And then at the end, his recommendations were like, yeah, you know, that's cool and all, but like you can kill it with the aggregate. You know, you can probably just like focus on getting enough enzyme diversity, like enough total enzyme diversity, and you can probably cover all those bases. And on some level, it feels a little bit like that, except for in the circumstance where you're talking about where people have a specific pathology or experiencing certain uh, GI issues that can, we can take some of what we know and make not complete uneducated guesses. I'm guessing, you know, when we'll talk a little bit about your process, if we get to that, where it's like, you know, like you said, there are going to be some we understand more viscous and more ferment fermentable that we at least can make an educated guess as far as like, hey, maybe we we start with this because you're experiencing this. Um, mm -hmm. And maybe that's where they become slightly less analogous. But that that is kind of it struck me. It was like, hey, we can have this super intellectual discussion about differences in fermentability and, and these other qualifications. But you're probably good aiming with uh, aiming at some form of a total amount, even generally, and some form of diversity, even generally. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't get more complicated than that. You know, so it, 
you, these conversations can be, you know, really overwhelming and sometimes go over so many different topics, but typically the general recommendations are always simple. You know, if it, if it's not simple, it's probably not, you know, not a good piece of advice overall. Um, just like you said, a variety of different plant foods, making sure that you're getting enough fiber and, you know, we can talk about that now if you want. Like I'd love to, yeah, let's fiber. go into that. So, yeah. Um, enough fiber. So general recommendations, and this is based on where from population level studies, there seems to be like greatest benefit achieved is about 14 grams per 2000 calories consumed. So that, or for 1000 calories consumed for the average person, that's 28 grams of fiber. It's pretty easy to get. So, um, getting more than that seems to be beneficial, but that seems like that, that level is where you can gain most of the benefits in terms of cardiovascular risk reduction, in terms of um, reduction of colorectal cancer and other GI issues. And, you know, it's 28 grams per day, which is, you know, seven grams, eight grams per meal, not that difficult to get. So most people are getting significantly less than this. Uh, the average population, I think, is about 14 to 15 grams. And half, you know, half of what, what the recommended amounts are. So, uh, most people I think can benefit from eating more fiber. Uh, same thing with like protein, you know, these are two just important nutrients that we think people are eating enough of, but the average person, when we look at the numbers is, is falling short for sure. I think uh, I have used the 15, you know, 14 grams per thousand calorie metric many times. And it's, it's striking me now as the question I would ask you is, is the calorie amount a proxy for body size or is there an actually a relationship between like the percentage of fiber intake per total energy intake, or is it more a proxy for like, Hey, the kind of average person who's eating, you know, 3000 calories is probably larger and probably that larger person also needs, you know, more, more fiber, or is it an actual interplay in the calorie amount? Yeah, I think it's more so to, to be appropriate for the calorie amount. So if you're eating more calories, you're eating more fiber. That means that the, the types of calories that you're eating probably haven't changed. If you eat more calories and the fiber hasn't increased, then you're gotcha. that also adding makes in sense. foods that, that aren't, you know, replacing. And so I think the 2000 calories is just kind of, it's 28 grams for 2000 calories is where like the, the, you know, studies have shown. And then now they just kind of project down and upwards depending on how many how much people's energy needs are to kind of make those estimates is there a difference in distribution i mean if we're looking at a like a, a an, an asymmetric distribution of like somebody eating most of that in one meal versus splitting it up over other meals do we know if there is a benefit to distribution more even distribution um we don't that would be i don't i don't think that definitely has been uh tested that, that, that's an interesting question I think the limitation there is that uh, you really have to, like, you can develop GI issues if you're eating enough fiber in a meal. So there's like a self-limiting. Yeah, uh, I agree with that. And people aren't eating enough fiber to get there anyway. Yeah, true. You know, 15 in a meal isn't that hard. And that's what people are eating over the course of a day. Yeah. So um, I don't think people are eating enough fiber for that to be a a real issue. But yeah, I, I do think that, you know, distributing it throughout the day is probably going to be ideal just to avoid GI issues. And and like you've mentioned with the like mission tortillas that have like 12 or 20 grams of fiber, um, those things, you just got to be careful because if they don't cause GI issues for you, that's cool. But for some, for a good portion of people, they're going to 
they're going to cause bloating, gas, discomfort, and you don't want to do that every time you eat a tortilla. <laughs> Well, let's, let's stick with that. Let's, let's transition here. Um, I wrote down a couple of things that I've just people have mentioned to me and they're like, hey, what do you think about this? Because, you know, ironically is I have a maybe a high percentage of clients who, who track something on some spectrum, whether it's it could be as as simple as like uh, meals per day that have a palm sized portion of protein. Like we're just having some form of thing that we are aiming for um, and tracking fiber or at least, you know, it, even maybe to the, you know, an extreme context to the gram even for a short term to see where you're at has is inching up the list for me of like in actual, like meaningful importance, both from a health and potential for aiding in, in, in fat loss, potentially, let's say which we'll talk about in a bit. And then I'll have somebody be like, oh, we're aiming for this like 15 gram per thousand calorie. Maybe we're in that like 25 to 30 range total per day. And then someone's like, bam, I'm going to get fucking 20 of that from these two mission carb wraps. And is that the same Jordan, you know? And it's almost like, I, I, I'm curious what your content, what your take on, is this the same or is this okay? My initial reaction is that um, it's suboptimal because it is in the very least all coming from one source. And we just had this whole spiel about how like diversity is quite important. And if you're aiming for 25 and you get 20 from this, like one thing um, and we could talk about, even if that one thing is, that is, is a, is a quality source at all. The fact that it is all coming from one thing, you're only going to aim for five more grams of fiber across the day, which means probably not a whole lot of diversity from there on. Um, you know, are you looking at this from a, Hmm, like, and I'll, I'll get there to you in a second, stop the ramble, but are you taking this package over and turning it over and being like, Hmm, what is the fiber source in here? And I'm going to make a judgment call on that. Or am I even taking one step back and be like, man, you're getting all of your fiber from one day from this one thing from one fiber source that isn't even a matrix in any way. It's like this one it's in it's inulin or oligosaccharide or it's uh, you know, psyllium husk or whatever it is. Um, how, how do we go about reconciling like this, like smart sweets or mission carb wraps or this, I just saw this things Olipop. It's like a, it's like a soda or something. And I looked at the ingredients and they did at me. Maybe it's just the marketing. They Chicory have root, right? Well, there's there's like quite a few actually, and and I to me that that like clicked of like okay, quite a few is already at least one small step in the right direction where it's not like bam, you know, there's 14 grams of fiber in this protein bar and they're all from inulin and you're gonna fucking you know shit your pants or have diarrhea or GI discomfort and so like how are we reconciling that? Are you taking that on a case by case basis? Or are you generally looking at these as like hey, this is like a probably not great to be hyper like getting such a high percentage from this one thing that's been like injected with like almost exogenously in a sense. Yeah. Uh, isn't a naturally occurring fiber. I'll let you take that. I would, um, in terms of tracking, I would almost not track that stuff and, and kind of like pull that fiber out. Um, I mean, there, there, like you said, there's, there's benefit if there's going to be multiple different sources, but, uh, with these wraps and things, they're typically just putting in a bunch of inulin is typically what I've seen in other, other just single fiber is, sources. Is that a, is that individually inulin? Is that, are you looking at that in a negative light because it's one source or specifically something about inulin? Because it's one source and, um, inulin is likely to cause GI issues for a lot of people. Um, and it's just because it's highly fermentable. So, uh, that I, I don't recommend going in that direction. And I would, I would, I would almost like exclude tracking these, um, super fiber sources. And there's only really like, uh, you know, those tortillas and, and a few of these other keto things. Like I definitely had some bread the other day. I was just curious. Um, I think it had like 22 grams of fiber, uh, something. Oh, they're all over the place, man. It's yeah, crazy. It, it, it's in it a lot of things. Of, yeah. It was one of these keto, uh, keto bread. So like 
I would take that out of the tracking. And if someone is eating a bunch of those and still hitting fiber goals, they're probably going to be bloated uh, from, from doing both. Um, so that, that's something that I would, you know, definitely take on a case by case basis, but I would discourage using those multiple times per day, maybe, you know, once per day getting 10 or 20 grams and then still getting your fiber on top of that. Uh, but definitely in terms of using, you know, those type of sources multiple times per day, it's just going to lead to too much fiber consumption, which is, it's just difficult from a GI perspective, like eating too much fiber is going to oftentimes lead to discomfort. And I'd rather see someone get less fiber from a variety of sources than getting, you know, 60 grams from bread and tortilla wraps. I'd rather see someone get 40 from a variety of sources. Yeah. I think if you had a circumstance where someone's like, Hey dude, I'm eating these mission wraps, but like, I also eat a high diverse diet with you know, and I do get 50 grams and I feel totally fine with no GI. I mean, like, okay, in that context, you're like, all right, cool. It's like part of a a, a total uh, habitual dietary intake that's actually working quite fine for you. It's just, that's not normally what it is. It's normally like, hey, you know, Dr. Adrian said I need to get, you know, 28 grams of fiber here. I'm I'm all the way there and, and then I'm done for the day. You know what I mean? And, yeah. and in that context, I would, I would discourage it as well. Totally agree. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, that's cool. That's good. It's interesting that are there... Um, you know, looking at inulin is one that I've, I've experienced myself in terms of this GI distress quite a bit. There was like a couple protein bars back in the day, just when this oh, like yeah. whole neck carb thing was coming out, there was like pumped. I remember quest was one of the first companies that was like pumping inulin until all their products. They were doing uh ISO IMOs, like ISO oligosaccharides. Yeah. And are there at, like out outside of, I think we've established that you're getting fucking ton of fiber from one source yeah. and one type of fiber, probably not the best plan, especially if it's in lieu of diversity elsewhere uh but are there specific fiber types that like, like specific types of fiber that people should look out for or is it just basically this idea of like having a ton of just one thing in lieu of diversity probably not a good play yeah i don't think there's there's hasn't been shown any like negative effects of taking these in small amounts i mean they're prebiotics there's benefits to like fructooligosaccharides and other um there, there's been positive trials that have been shown with with these at smaller doses <laughs> but uh the thing is that they're being put into to things that 10 grams, 20 grams. And that's where, uh, like you said, it's just a shitload of one fiber that, that can really be problematic for some people. That's awesome. Super helpful. I know it's going to help a ton of people out there. I just think that there's a, a large audience of people that are, you know, seeking out, pursuing, increasing fiber. They know it's important. And here's a way yeah. that, I mean, it's just not, I understand where they're coming if from. There's so like, a couple grams too. Like if let's say you had a bar that had two grams of fiber and it was from inulin that, that, a little bit different than you know, the 10, 20 grams. So that, that I wouldn't, I wouldn't worry about it. Um, it's just not something that I would just go out and seek as a fiber source. Yeah. Is there, are there, um, are, you know, you know, like if you look at the protein analogy where you're like looking at, uh, foods that have like a high protein per calorie ratio, potentially, if that's, if you're concerned with even generally just both of those, whether you're specifically tracking them or not, you're just like acknowledging that both of those are important and you're like, okay, lean proteins tend to have, tend to like reign supreme in that regard. Are there, you know, yeah, I was going to say, are there specific foods that you're like, Hey, this is a real easy way to get more fiber in. And, and this is something maybe most people haven't thought about. And the reason I'm asking you is because recently I've it sounds recently in the last year or so, started to eat more like chia seeds and more basil seeds. And it's, it's, it's really unbelievably easy to, to, to get some of those things in your diet. And actually that, again, from a diversity perspective, that I think is something that is people are not consuming a lot of, um, that is a low hanging fruit. Like what are some of these like 
and maybe there aren't any and maybe it's just a diversity thing it's like hey like diversify what your Be- intake is beans but- nuts and seeds are are the three that i think people don't eat enough of and and those all have additional benefits as well so like beans and lentils um peas edamame soybeans those as well or, or like all of those are great options they're all going to be high, high in fiber and then any type of nuts and seeds um there's going to be a decent amount of fiber and pretty much anything, peanut butter, almond butter, sunflower seeds, almonds, macadamia nuts, like you can pretty much eat any nut or seed and you're going to get those that those different types of fiber, but you're also going to get you know, healthy fat sources. You're going to get vitamin E and other micronutrients, depending on what, uh, what nut or seed you're eating. You know, some of those are going to have high potassium levels, magnesium levels, like nuts and seeds are pretty nutrient rich as well. So definitely recommend, you know, those three as sources to include more of most people that I speak to aren't eating any of them, uh, or, or eating very little of like either, you know, beans and lentils are eating almost none of, or nuts and seeds are almost eating almost none of. So really including some of those things into the diet on a regular basis. And when I say including them, it doesn't mean you have to eat a whole bunch of them. You know, you can add some, some beans to say, for example, you're making, uh, taco ground beef. And, you know, you can just add a can of beans to that to increase the protein, increase the fiber and increase the number of different types of fiber that you're, you're eating. Yeah, absolutely. Let's talk about this, this experience of, well, let's, let's close the box. I'm looking at the notes. Let's, let's close the box on fermented foods here. If people are like, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm really like into my like sauerkraut and my kefir and my kimchi and my kombucha. And it's like, are, are we placing, uh, are we, you know, what's our like one or two sentence recommendation on how to go about conceptualizing whether or not these things are worth it? I mean, if you like them, go for it. Uh, I wouldn't go out of your way to purposefully try to include a bunch of them. Um, you know, yogurt's great. <laughs> Kefir is great, you know, but other things are d- even difficult to access. Like for me, where I live, there's no fresh sauerkraut or kimchi. So I'm not going to go drive to like whole foods 30 minutes away to get that stuff. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, go out of your way, but if you like to eat these things, like if there was kimchi at my HEB, I would definitely include it in some of my meals. So definitely, uh, recommend including these fermented foods as you enjoy them, but, uh, don't overdo it in terms of thinking that they're going to like have some major gut health benefit. They're, they're, they're really not usually they're not they're not going to produce any noticeable effect on your digestion they're just they're good foods to eat it's just a nutrient dense food like anything else just like blueberries are a nutrient dense food you know these are uh, other foods that can provide nutrition for you i was just thinking that there's just like a big fat confounding variable of a lot of these foods also have other benefits too and it's like if you're like hey i'm trying to increase my fiber intake and i start eating like i am upset like obsessed lately just with uh i don't know why but I, we started eating a lot of berries i got away from like a large diverse vegetable intake for a small period of time and, and got really whatever just started eating a lot more like berries let's say um and was getting expensive and so recently somebody like posted on social media that they were just getting like this big bag of like frozen mixed veg uh, mixed berries like not organic just like way more cost effective um and it's just funny that like in the pursuit of increasing fiber like there's just so many indirect benefits uh you know knock on confounding benefits here of like ton of extra micronutrients or polyphenols or whatever else you're, you know, we talked about the, the maybe potentially different protein um, amino acid profile from switching out to some having or adding, just adding some beans or whatever. And so it is interesting that there's like in the pursuit of increasing fiber intake, 
a lot and, and increasing diversity, like a lot of good other things happen too. Well, yeah, that's why it's a good recommendation. Like yeah, it, it's, it's a good recommendation more so because I always talk about this. People are like, sometimes I feel like people question why I'm recommending fiber. And this, this is why it's just a, it's a proxy measure for if you eat more fiber and diverse amounts of fiber, you're going to eat, eat more fruits, vegetables, nuts, seeds, beans, whole grains, which is good. And, and so that that's where I like that you mentioned you have people track fiber because that's, that can be really good for increasing the number of vegetables and fruits that they're eating without telling people to eat more fruits and vegetables because people don't like to hear that as much. Yeah. Agreed. Uh, let's talk about a little bit about, um, I could talk a little bit. I just will explicitly mention the carnivore diet, but just generally, obviously that's just like an extremely extreme, that's redundant, uh, form of an elimination diet. This idea of, I stopped eating fiber and I felt better. How are we reconciling that situation? And and usually, you know, even more like an attempt to formulate that argument is the person saying, well, then I reintroduced my plant foods and started feeling worse again. So this is a very clean experiment of like felt better when I took them away, felt worse when I brought them in. How do we reconcile this person's experience? Yeah. So when you take them away, when you take away plant foods, you're going to take away fermentation, the process of fermentation that's occurring in your gut. So if you're bloated, you're gassy, you take away plant foods. Number one, a lot of times people are taking away a lot of foods that they know they shouldn't have, like not shouldn't have, you know, know that weren't nutritious in the first place. So um, understand where you're going from in your diet. Like if you're eating a bunch of processed foods and then you take away all these, you know, quote unquote plant foods, you're taking away a bunch of processed foods that probably weren't good for you anyway. So that that is not a clean swap in terms of, you know, really looking at whether or not it's the plants that are causing this. Uh, now, if you're eating a, a healthy diet already and you go from, okay, I take away plant foods, you feel better. Um, that's likely the result of how those plant foods and plant fibers are interacting with your microbiome. And it could be in some cases that there's certain fibers that were contributing to that. It could be for a lot of people, a lot of people with inflammatory or irritable bowel syndrome, uh, FODMAPs, certain types of fermentable carbohydrates, they can contribute to bloating and gas and discomfort. And so individuals, when they go on a low FODMAP diet, this is well, well tested. This is the standard of care essentially for, for an individual with IBS is put them on a low FODMAP diet. When they go on that low FODMAP diet, 70% of people experience dramatic improvements in symptoms. And a lot of people, in my opinion, I've seen this, I've heard stories, a lot of people with IBS are going on these carnivore diets and it's essentially a zero FODMAP diet. So they're taking away all of these FODMAP rich foods and that leads to symptomatic improvement in the short term. Um, Studies on low FODMAP diets have shown that when you when you restrict FODMAPs for a long period of time, there's negative effects on the microbiome. Seems to have negative effects, you know, over the long term. And I'm seeing this. Um, we don't have research on it, but I'm seeing this with people who are reaching out to me. Uh, and it doesn't happen all the time. But anytime I talk about the carnivore diet, people will reach out to me and say, "Hey, you know, I've been following this diet for a while. Uh, I felt great at first, but now it's a year later, and you know, my GI tract is messed up." or I started developing all these other issues, my testosterone's down, cholesterol is completely out of control, whatever the case may be. So, you know, a lot of people are going to feel better. You know, IBS affects 15% of the population. At least in the short term. Yeah, a lot of people are going to feel better in the short term from a digestive standpoint. Some people feel better from a from an energy and, and health standpoint, number one, because you're losing a lot of weight oftentimes. Number two, you're eating more protein, which a lot of times people just aren't eating enough protein anyway. 
And, you know, number three, uh, you're going into ketosis. So for some people, that's going to feel better from an energy standpoint. It's going to feel better than, you know, what you were eating before if you weren't fueling yourself properly before and you were eating junk food and eating massive meals and going hours without eating, you know, not just like fueling yourself properly. So um, there's many different factors that can be at play here. And I've heard many stories and usually they fall into one of these categories of like you were just going from junk food to eating healthier. You had existing digestive issues and you needed to do an elimination diet. And it happened that you stumbled upon carnivore and this turned into your elimination diet, but it wasn't necessarily you don't have to really remove all of those foods. It could have been that you just stay away from certain types of fibers, certain types of carbohydrates. And, and you would have experienced that same symptomatic improvement without the potential side effects of going on this type of diet long-term. What's the, what's the order of operations there? Is it symptom-based? Are you, are you making educated decisions based on client feedback or educated, uh, educa I say educated guess is just based on the fact that like, it's not a surefire thing. It's like, oh, you're bloating, bam, it's, it's FODMAPs. I mean, that, so, like you said, 70% see a, a, at least an initial like great reduction in, in symptoms. Um, but what's that process like? Is it, is it client feedback driven? Is it, is it evidence-based from research driven? Is it a combination of those things? Definitely a combination of those things. So, um, symptom-based based on, um, I have clients do a food journal. We're looking at, okay, how often are you getting bloated? How severe is it? What foods were you eating? We're simplifying their nutrition. That's the most important thing. You have to simplify your nutrition for a period of time and then test out various foods because that will help you dial in on the foods that you're actually reacting to. Um, but a lot of people in in the, in, and this goes against the diversity thing. So this goes against what we've been talking about the whole time. And this is where, you know, nuance and nutrition has to exist because there's always, you know, exceptions to everything. So like when, when you have digestive issues, eating 12 different vegetables in a meal and a couple of different beans or whatever. Yeah, that might be great for promoting diversity long-term, but it's not helping you to dial in on the certain things that you're, you're reacting to. So I always have people simplify their nutrition. Um, we try to identify based on history, you know, what are the main triggers of your GI symptoms? For some people, it's high fat meals. For other people, it's FODMAPs. For other people, you know, there, there's just different things, you know, it's just certain types of foods, um, certain types of FODMAPs. So, you know, taking away as little as possible at first and then seeing the symptomatic changes and then, you know, kind of following an order of operations of, okay, this is, this is the lowest hanging fruit. This seems to be most likely to be triggering symptoms. Let's take that away. See how you do, uh, give it, you know, a couple days and then make some decisions about, you know, next steps on, on removing additional foods. Um, but I always recommend, you know, depending on the severity of someone's really discomfort, you know, uncomfortable, they're, they're having like, just can't deal with it on a day-to-day -day basis. In those cases, I might do like, might recommend, Hey, let's take away all these things. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll add things back later, uh, just to try to get symptomatic improvement as quickly as possible. But, uh, depending on the severity, you know, either take away a lot to get quick symptomatic improvement or, you know, take away the lowest hanging fruit and try to work through that process. And then the goal is to just dial in on the specific things that someone's reacting to. And, and oftentimes that gives information about what's going on. So if, if someone's reacting to, and a lot of times what, what I'll find is that someone's reacting to FODMAPs, but they're only reacting to FODMAPs when they're, when they're constipated. <laughs> and so 
if you fix the constipation in there, they become more regular, like that, that's not an issue. So there's a lot of considerations uh, that are taken into account. And it's all based on feedback, as you mentioned, and really taking into account the, the, the evidence, you know, all of the studies that I've read on this topic and IBS and different approaches to it. And then, you know, taking that feedback and the feedback ends up being, you know, the most important thing. And, and as you mentioned, it's just educated guesses, like with GI stuff, anyone who promises more than educated guesses is, is misleading you. And and I always tell anyone who reaches out to me to, to work with me, I'm like, this is what I think might work, but <laughs> I have no idea, you know, or I can't promise anything, you know, or in many cases, you know, I, I've seen certain things multiple times and have help people to improve those certain issues. IBS is IBSC is um, one that I've helped a lot of people with. So I know that with that, I can usually get down to the, uh, to the underlying factors and really help people improve their symptoms. But like you said, it really is, it's a whole guessing game and it's educated guesses and what, what going screams, based on feedback, feedback. What it screams to me as somebody who's like, also works with people in this context of their nutrition is that if you're having GI discomfort that that uh, you think requires or you're kind of have this gut feeling, <laughs> uh, pun intended, that you should kind of think about, okay, maybe I'm having a reaction to certain things. The minute you're like thinking about doing something like an elimination or trying to go down this path of figuring it out what's going on, please, please work with a professional. This is just not something that like I feel qualified doing. This is not something that the average coach should be walking their clients through. In my opinion, um, it just feels like even the professionals who like yourself, who are just very much immersed in this and know how to take the feedback, you're still making educated guesses. What the hell am I doing? You know? And so <laughs> yeah. I definitely feel like this is like, I have a friend of mine who at some point I was like, dude, like, I want to help. And I have some loose knowledge from like talking to professionals and you know, I just there's there's just a line in the sand of like seriousness to the point where it's like this is something that that should be taken seriously uh, and, and you should see a professional for this. Yeah, yeah. I, I, in the future, in the next couple of years, we should see more um, dietitians who specialize in this and who and who can help uh, individuals and who get referred by their GI docs because that would solve everything. If if you went to your GI doc, you got diagnosed with IBS and you got sent to a dietitian who just knew it. And, and could really provide the proper guidance. But unfortunately, a lot of like local dietitians don't stay up to the research or don't stay up to date with research. So people get referred to a dietitian or they don't get referred in most cases. Uh, but when they do get referred half the time, it, you know, they're, they're meeting with someone who's not up to date with the research and doesn't really provide the right guidance. And unfortunately, uh, there, there's a lot of breaks in the process that we're right now, it, it should be. And this is the case in, in with some people that I've worked with, uh, you know, overseas where as soon as they got diagnosed with digestive issues with IBS, they got referred to a dietitian who specialized in that. And we, we should be there, um, it, with, with our healthcare system, but it's taken time for sure. But the evidence for the right approaches, you know, for IBS are pretty, pretty solid in terms of the research. Like we, we know what, what works generally, and a skilled practitioner should be able to put that put that into practice with with a patient um, if they're staying up to date with that research. Just it's just man, it's just a conversation you and I have had a f- several times. Like the 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 presence of absolute language and just a high level of certainty around this, like, is just in some ways a red flag of like 
I almost feel that same way sometimes about like a, and I'm not, I think physical therapists are great, but sometimes I think the, the pain, like trying to identify exact causes of pain is also in this abstract uh, educated guess context. And I just, mm-hmm. I, it screams to me like, and I want to transition to over some of the pseudoscience um, and kind of ask you like, what makes this topic so ripe for misinformation and for charlatans and for marketing and for bullshit? Yeah. It goes back to what we were just saying uh, at the beginning of the episode, it's been about 15 years since we've been able to measure the microbiome. So I've been able to do these DNA based tests where we're looking at the DNA of the microbes that come out in the stool. Um, but we're looking at the DNA of the microbes that come out in the stool. We can't, we're not going in and measuring what's in the small intestine at the proximal part of the small intestine, what's in the stomach, what's in the, uh, you know, the distal part of the large intestine, what's in different parts of, uh, small and large intestine, like there's different environments throughout this 27 feet of GI tract, and there's different microbial populations, and each of these microbes could be contributing to various symptoms in, in ways that we don't understand at this point. So that's where, um, you know, a lot of this stuff is ripe for misinformation because experts are saying they don't understand. And if you have a GI issue, you're looking for someone who understands. So it's really easy. The first person who says, Hey, I get it. I know how to fix you. They're going to, they're going to develop a platform. Like if I went on and said, I have the solution to IBS, you know, follow me for the IBS solution. And I, and I spoke about these topics and I could in a way that seems very convincing. And I, and I just, oversold the actual potential of the things that I'm discussing, that would, that would go viral. That would help like that would reach a lot of people. And that's where pseudoscience and these topics where we don't really understand them that well. um, Someone who lacks integrity is always willing to step in and pretend like they understand it better than they actually do. And at this point we can't, we still can't measure the microbiome that well. We don't have long-term data on, microbiome changes and how that impacts various health outcomes. So um, we don't know like, okay, if you eat these foods, how does that affect your microbiome? And how does that in turn affect depression, anxiety, like all of these different things that we want, we want to be able to talk about. And we know that there's an impact. We know that, um, you know, what's going on in our digestive tract is definitely impacting every health system throughout our body, our hormones, our, our, our mental health, our neurotransmitter production, because of the fact that it's involved in so many different processes. But um, characterizing all of that stuff is just not possible right now. And people saying, you know, got brain interaction and things like that, that's generally based on very minimal data. That's based on data that shows, hey, people with IBS or have higher rates of anxiety. And we don't even know which one came first. Like, is it the anxiety that caused the IBS? Oftentimes, that's the case. Um, but people will say, oh, look, another um, another piece of evidence for gut-brain interaction. This is why you have to take care of your gut if you're anxious. And the reality is oftentimes it's the other way around. It's the anxiety that causes the GI issues. And this is, you know, the science is just so so limited on this on this field. We, we don't, as I mentioned, like in terms of like gut-brain, we don't have good intervention trials where we're feeding people uh, foods or feeding them, you know, microbes or probiotics and showing benefits. And there is, a there, there's probably a dozen studies that have looked at, you know, depression, anxiety, um, when people take probiotics, but the results are so mixed because we just, when you take a probiotic, like let's say I'm taking a probiotic and then Jordan, you're taking one, um, the 
effect that it's going to have on my ecology is going to be dramatically different than what happens in your gut because we have different microbes. And, and so even, even if let's say all those microbes got into your GI tract, how it interacts with the community of microbes that you have is going to be completely different than how it interacts with the community of microbes that I have. And so I don't think that microbiome based interventions are going to be something that we really use and see major benefit from until we can properly profile our microbiome in at all sites. So that's going to take like swallowing a capsule or something like that. And it just taking samples throughout our GI tract. Um, I don't see any other way that that's going to occur because we'd have to stick a tube all the way down the 27 feet of GI tract, but that, you know, we we're going to need to know what our existing microbiome is, what it's lacking in terms of like the postbiotics that it's producing and how we can, you know, basically support that with a targeted microbial delivery, you know, that's going to be some individualized probiotic. Like we'll be able to do that in the future, but right now it's, it's a guessing game, <laughs> taking a probiotic or doing, and, and this is where people who come in and say, Hey, I have the answer. Here's this microbiome test, or here's this food sensitivity test, or here's this probiotic that everyone needs to take. Um, it, it's attractive. It sounds nice, but um, it, it's never going to be something that really um, stands up to the claims that are being made around that. Yeah. And, and when we're talking about this, like, uh, you know, you could go on your, on your, on your page and, and just purport a bit more of a, I'm sure of this mentality and, and to the average consumer that why choose uncertainty when you could choose certainty, why choose the person who's not sure? Why, why not choose the person who's sure? And, and at first glance, I understand that, but I feel like we, I'd like to, you know, as much as a lot of these health benefits uh, or a lot of these like health discussions and nutrition discussions are cool. Like one of the things I think would have a long uh, a lot uh, would make a big difference is that just from a consumer standpoint, from an education of the consumer standpoint to kind of maybe value the un the uncertainty a little bit more. Like uh, I'm just like, if it just generally, if you and I've talked about this before, but this, like if you're seeing people who are, you know, a bit more uncertain, but willing to learn and willing to change their mind. And Hey, this is what we, you know, what we think we know based on this evidence like, we should start to just kind of uh, elevate that, that, or seek that out more. Actually the, the, the certainty should be more of a red flag. And then something I find hysterical is, a lot of times headlines will read something to the effect of XYZ changed the microbiome with an exclamation point. And then, you know, that sends like an emotional response into the reader. But at the end of the day, that's not an end, that's not an end, uh, uh, like an end product. Like we're looking for how does that change affect your end product? Something about actually how you're, you know, some sort of phenotype, right? And so uh, I always like laugh, like I'm not gonna just, I don't wanna go into the artificial sweetener research, but there's like always somebody's like, it, it affects the gut microbiome. I'm like, how, how does that affect your life and your day to day and anything about like your actual health? I mean, are you, any change you make to a lot of factors, nutrition, there's a ton of them, will change your microbiome in some way. If you change something about your diet, changing your microbiome. Like to me, that makes a ton of sense. But the the word change doesn't necessarily tell us anything. And so I was just like, they're like, it affects the microbiome. I'm like, yes, how? And how does that change affect or manifest in some phenotype, in some expression of your health at, at the actual endpoint? Health headlines are, I mean, it's just, there's a science behind it. You know, they, they, they truly have studied this and market, like studied how to market to people and get people to uh, buy into these you know claims. And, and so 
you just got to be careful with headlines. And uh, this is why I recommend, I mean, I, I think really one of the best things that most people can do is just shut off like pretty much every source of information that you can in this space, except for a small few, because if you, if you listen to your friend or your coworker, or you let yourself slip into reading the headline on prevention magazine, which seems legit on the, you know, the grocery store checkout, you're, you're just going to be, you're going to get these little messages that are just bullshit, like just complete bullshit. And you're trying to like figure out your health and what to do when you're just taking in all of these small bullshit messages that, that are just, you, you're trying to make sense of them and they're, they're, it's overwhelming. And, and it goes back to what we said, you know, if you're worried about your microbiome, just eat a diverse diet. <laughs> stress is probably a big factor there as well. Like stress is probably the second biggest factor besides like diet and stress comes from exercise too. Like too much exercise, too little sleep, too much psychological stress. These are all probably three of the main factors that I see that kind of combine together to negatively impact people's digestive health. And so, um, you know, food diversity, simple stuff, uh, is really where it's at. And, and with most things, I always, I tell people this too, like, cause people ask me about like, what do I need to do for brain health? Or what do I need to do for X health? And, and we can't micromanage our organ systems. Like it's going to get really complicated living a healthy lifestyle. If we think that we have to micromanage every organ system and keep every organ system at optimal health. If you're focusing on the, the big picture, you're focusing on really keeping yourself healthy overall and doing the things that we know are, you know, quote unquote, health promoting, eating plenty of fruits and vegetables, eating plenty of protein, not overeating, uh, exercising, managing stress, sleep. Like if you're doing those things, you're taking care of each organ system. Like you don't have to specifically do certain things for each one. I get these questions all the time. And I always think that I'm like, we really think like, oh, I have to do this for my gut health. And I have to do this for my kidneys. And I have to do this for my brain. And like that, that's just making it incredibly too complicated. Like just focus on healthy habits overall. And that's going to improve your health. And that's going to improve your gut health and every other organ system along with that. I don't think we've had a podcast that hasn't ended exactly the same way. <laughs> I just think, I don't think we've had a podcast where I've ended with like a, a really profound change other, you know, just like outside of the big rocks, but yeah, there of course there's some, some nuance within it, but yeah, I totally agree with that. Let's do a couple, just a couple hot takes. I'll let you get out of here. We'll do a couple hot takes of uh, just looking at things like IgG tests, like food sensitivity tests, like microbiome tests, like stool tests. Like are we, are we on the scale of total bullshit or on the scale of like probably not worth your money, but maybe one day we'll be there or yay, these are great. It's going to totally fix you. Or where are we on some of those things? School test. Um, I mean, if you have unlimited money and, and you have the right person interpreting it for you and, and it's just like you're looking at it as interesting as opposed to like this is a diagnostic test. Yeah, do that. Um, IgG test, that's completely worthless. I think one day I was on a conversation or I was on a podcast yesterday talking about inflammation. I think one day we'll, we'll have, we'll be able to like have people swallow like a protein of various types and see the response throughout the body that happens when it comes to inflammation. But IgG is not looking at inflammation. It's not looking at a negative response to food. Um, it, it's really, that one's a complete scam. Um, and so microbiome tests one day, one day those are going to be amazing. Uh, one day that's going to be really helpful when we 
are able to actually profile the microbiome. Right now, it's not a microbiome test, just it's a stool test. It's looking at the microbes in your poop, not <laughs> the microbes in your gut. So that's the important thing to differentiate here. And so when we actually can do a microbiome test, that's going to be great. Pretty much all food sensitivity tests are, are bogus at this point. Um, I think technology is a, a ways away from being able to properly profile inflammatory responses to foods because there's a, there's a potential inflammatory response in the gut. There's, you know, in various tissues throughout the body there, you know, there's, there's several different um, places where that particular food can be contributing to an inflammatory response. And we can't measure that right now. Um, so that's something that, you know, these tests are claiming to look at the foods that cause inflammation for individuals, but it's not really there. Um, and so I definitely recommend avoiding those of all types, especially like the one that there's one that's like 600 bucks. Jesus um, Christ. Yeah. I forget that there's a, there's a, I think it's functional diagnostic nutritionist. They use this test as a way to like personalize people's nutrition. So messed up. Um, but de yeah, definitely recommend avoiding all of those for now, save your money on that stuff, invest your money into learning more about nutrition or having a coach, getting accountability support, like or in the too many people section. are, yeah, too, too many people are wasting their money on, on, you know, gimmicks and, and testing and, and supplements and not many people are investing into guidance, coaching this professional guidance and coaching is so helpful for, for many people who have been dieting their whole lives and I know, I know that some people think, oh, you know, that's what they do. So that, that's why they're promoting. Honestly, like I, I send people to other people most of the time because it's like, I can just see that you're going to benefit from just having someone to, to say, hey, chill out, focus on these things and do this. And let me show you how that gets results. And once you see the results, it's like, okay, now I can just keep going with it. And people don't realize the value of, you know, three to six months of, getting quality coaching with someone and how that can really uh, take away a lot of these uncertainties. I'm, 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 I'm going to let you go here and we'll, and we'll wrap it up, but I'm, I'm interested. I'm just, I'm interested in the, the discussion of diversity as it evolves. And, the, and it's something that I will continue to disseminate down to my, my following and my, and my clients as something that's independently important. I think that again, from the protein analogy perspective, like I do think that there's a value in pursuing total daily amount as as a hope that it's a proxy for diversity um and independently also probably helpful outside of an extreme circumstance where you're just pounding mission wraps and that's it um and so i really look forward to that that the progression of that discussion of the importance of diversity and hopefully it, it, it makes its way down to the mainstream as uh something that's you know potentially equally as important or slots itself into the hierarchy somewhere you know in relation to the importance of total daily number but it is in, it becoming increasingly clear that 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 diversity outside of the circumstances that we talked about where maybe you're you have a specific gi uh issue that we're going to from a more logical experimentation like building a, a more structured experiment we're going to break it down to like more simple, maybe less diversity to try and isolate a variable outside of that circumstance. I do find that interesting. And I, and I hope there's more discussion about it because it, it, it seems just from the, the, the educators and experts like yourself and, and other people that have, that I've been listening to lately have been emphasizing it quite a bit. And I just like, it's, it should, I feel like it should be something that we're talking about more. Yeah, for sure. I completely agree. And from another perspective, the micronutrient, um, the the different micronutrients that you get from plant foods is also an important factor. So I've been I've been preaching diversity since before before we really understand understood these fiber sources. Because if you're taking in 
uh, for example, onions, and you're getting quercetin from that, and you're taking in tomatoes and getting in lycopene, and you're getting you know anthocyanins from berries, like these different micronutrients. When we isolate these things, when we take lycopene and mix it with different cancer cells, like these things have medicinal type benefits. So this is where I think consuming a variety of different plant foods of different color spectrums overall from a fiber perspective is good, but also from a micronutrient perspective, like the intake of different micronutrients that you're going to get exposed to that aren't necessarily recognized as like, you know, essential vitamins and minerals, but also seem to be providing a health benefit as well. Um, and, and this is where, you know, a lot of these supplements come from these plant compounds that we have shown to be beneficial in a lab. And, you know, these companies just try to like over, uh, you know, create very, you know, potent sources of them, but you can get this stuff through food. It's in smaller amounts, but there's likely a benefit from that. And that's, I think that's why we see plant-based diets, people who eat more plants tend, tend to do better overall, you know, cancer, heart disease, and everything else because partly because of the fiber, partly because of these different micronutrients that come from these foods. Yeah. I, I just will end on just like, a, as we're talking about the importance of diversity that I do want to sympathize with the consumer who's like maybe feeling overwhelmed. Like they have to live in a fucking garden. All of a sudden they got to like have 400 different plants every day and every week. And, you know, I think just like everything else, it's about taking you meeting your where you're at and moving in a directional sense towards a smidge more diversity over time. And maybe just shifting your mindset when you're in the supermarket and I don't want to dive into a big how, even though I think that that's a fair discussion, but if you are listening to us and you're like, Oh my God, I got to, I can't have broccoli anymore. I like broccoli. I really got to have, you know, a bunch of different stuff every day. Yeah. Okay. Let's doesn't need to be an overnight change to this like crazy. The, the you know, frozen blends are everything. Yeah, like you said, simple things like that. The frozen that. mixed berries, the frozen Normandy blend, the frozen, like that's, that's how I get mixed most of nuts, my produce. Mixed seeds, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Exactly. And, that's a really that, good point. That helps to really increase diversity without having to really think about it much. Just buy a different type of frozen veggie and, and mix it into your meals. I think most people, I, and again, I think of myself and I, I like maybe I really enjoy maybe like at least five vegetables, but I might just for the, like the sake of like my brain being off, I might stick to one out of an assumption that it's just all the same mm -hmm. shit anyway. And then I think it'd be important to acknowledge that like, okay, if you like all of these vegetables, maybe make an effort to rotate each of them in a bit more instead of just sticking with that one thing. But you're so right that the, a medley, a blend, they exist out there. You don't necessarily need to be creating them from yourself from scratch. You totally can though. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Cool, man. I'll let you go. Tell people where they can find you and uh, drop a line and, and we'll let you get out of here. Yeah. So you can find me on Instagram. Uh, it's probably the place where I'm most active. My uh, handle is Dr. Adrian Chavez there. So at DR period, Adrian period Chavez. And then also I just relaunched my own podcast, uh, the nutrition science podcast. So uh, that is another great place to learn more on various topics. So I'm just launched the first episode. It'll be by the time this comes out, I'm sure there'll be a few more. Nice. Excellent. That's exciting, man. I'll give it a follow. All right. Thanks a lot for coming on, man. Excellent episode as always. Thanks for your time. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you.